0: From the heart of our nation's capital, here's Family Research Council President, Tony Perkins.
1: Welcome, friends, to Washington Watch. My name is Joseph Backholm. I am a senior fellow for Biblical Worldview here at Family Research Council, and it is my pleasure and honor to be sitting in for Tony today and with you. Never a boring day in the nation's capital. We have a lot to cover today on the program. I want to remind you before we get to all of it that you can find this in every Edition of Washington Watch at the website at tonyperkins.com. What we're going to talk about today on the show the White House said that puberty blockers for children are reversible. Representative Mary Miller said that's not true. Then some fact checkers got involved and said what Representative Mary Miller said was false. So are puberty blockers reversible or not? We're going to talk about that with Representative Mary Miller today on the show. In addition, in the month of March, Border Patrol set a record when 210,000 migrants were apprehended at the southern border. What's behind the surge? Can anything be done to get it under control? We'll have that conversation today. Also, some members of Congress who have private security details paid for by taxpayers are calling for the police to be defunded. Is that hypocritical? We'll tell you all about it and what one congressman, Greg Murphy from North Carolina, is trying to do about it. But first, the headline today, the top story in the nation's capital and around the country. Yesterday, a federal judge struck down the Biden administration's mask mandate for air travel and other public transportation. Now, the Biden administration responded that they were disappointed in the decision.
2: CDC recommended continuing the order for additional time, two weeks, uh, to be able to assess the latest science in keeping with its responsibility to protect the American people. So this is obviously a disappointing decision. The CDC continues recommending wearing a mask in public transit.
1: Earlier today, however, the Biden administration indicated they do not plan to appeal the decision, effectively ending the federal mask mandate for public transportation. Well, Washington Watch reporter Marjorie Jackson joins us now with more, both from Washington's Union Station and Ronald Reagan National Airport.
3: Hello, Joseph. Right behind me here is the Ronald Reagan National Airport. Yesterday, a federal judge in Florida ruled that the CDC's mask mandates for traveling was not in their legal authority. So today, I have been out talking to all kinds of travelers who have been taking flights and catching trains and riding the Washington DC metro and gathering their opinions on the fact that the Biden administration will no longer be enforcing wearing masks in public transit. Yesterday, a federal court shot down the mask mandate for travel. What are your reactions?
1: Oh, I
4: like it. I think it's good.
1: Wear your mask if you feel good about wearing it. If you don't feel about good about wearing it, take it down. You have an opinion. You know, Let God be the
0: reason for your season. I understand where people have a feeling that it should be up to them individually, how they want to lead their lives. We've been into this for two years now. I think we know what to do and what not to do.
5: The CDC gave me good advice. Um, Judges aren't healthcare care people. Um, if I'm correct, it was out of Florida, wasn't it? That's correct. Yeah, well, there you go. Um, <laughs> that, that
1: it's a troublesome place, and they're just being belligerent.
3: Have you been traveling at all? And if so, have you been wearing a mask, or were the people uh, around you?
1: I wore a mask coming here.
4: I'm going back into uh, Philly right now. And so I'm just going to at least try it out, you know, with no mask. Uh, I've had Omicron. Wasn't a nice thing, but uh, my antibodies are protecting me, which I've heard it works. So I'm excited.
0: We actually have people on our tour. We have about 120 kids and 20 or so chaperones, and I would say probably 20 percent are wearing masks and 80 percent are not.
1: I got my bass lowered a little bit, though. I have it. Um, but it's lowered because I, I don't want to give people the impression I think you're some type of disease. I want to give people the impression America's getting back online. We're moving forward in our country. We're showing more love now and not hate. I think that. The coronavirus brought a lot of hatred amongst people. It made people be nasty and mean and not together.
3: So for me and my leadership, I'll be trying to bring people more together, whether you have your mask up or down. So clearly, people have a lot of different opinions about if they're excited about the mask mandate being dropped or if they're going to continue to opt to wear the mask while they're flying or traveling in other ways. Back to you, Joseph.
1: Thank you so much, Marjorie, for that great report. And frankly, your last guest there needs to have her own show. Perhaps we can give her a segment. I think we could all learn something from her. Great and encouraging report from the ground in the nation's capital today. But continuing our discussion of yesterday's ruling in the end of the federal mask mandates for airlines and public transportation, you might not have known that last month, FRC Action filed a similar lawsuit in the U.S. District Court. Enjoy. Joining me now by phone to discuss yesterday's ruling as well as the FRC Action lawsuit is Ken Klukowski, who filed the lawsuit on behalf of FRC Action. He's senior counsel at Share Jaffe LLP. Ken, Joseph, good to have you on the you program. Thank you
0: for having me, sir. No, the pleasure is mine. Thank you, sir.
1: We are glad to have you. Uh, by now, most people are aware of the ruling. What was your reaction when you heard the decision?
0: Well, I was very encouraged that another well-credentialed, well-regarded judge in another part of the country, uh, that one of the issues raised in the lawsuit before her, which has been before her for almost a year. This is a lawsuit that was filed in July of 2021 and has extensive briefing and argument that when she got to the part of the case being raised uh, there, that we are also raising in our case. That being that the mask mandate is now with the current state of medical science of what we understand about COVID, about airplanes and about uh, and about masks, that the science no longer supports the idea that people should have to wear masks and that not everyone is equal. That people you, you, we heard one of uh, uh, the people who were interviewed there. Where he said that he's recovered from COVID, that he has natural antibodies, he understands that that protects him to some degree. That is correct, uh, and uh, and so children, uh, children are are at especially low risk from COVID, and they're at heightened risk both physical risks and also mental risks from wearing masks. And that's been scientific literature that's been that's become very prominent over the past few months. Uh, And so as we're looking at all these different aspects uh, of the case, that this was a judge who saw what the law requires when a federal agency is imposing burdens on the American people. That law, by the way, is called the Administrative Procedure Act, the APA, and it sets forth the requirements that agencies need to meet when they're putting legal obligations or restrictions on you and me. Uh, and looking at that, among other things in the case, she concluded, just as we are arguing in our own case, that forcing people to wear masks on airplanes meets the definition of what the law calls arbitrary and capricious, and therefore that uh, that uh, uh, that the judge did the right thing, Judge mazelle in declaring it unlawful and setting it aside.
1: Now, Ken— can- a lot of people look at this decision, and, and the Center for Disease Control was making these recommendations, and of course, there's lots of doctors, lots of science or scientists at the CDC, and they look at this decision essentially as a judge uh, usurping the professional judgment of a whole bunch of, uh, of doctors and, uh, and medical professionals and substituting their judgment with her own. Is that the right way to look at this from a legal perspective?
0: It's definitely the wrong way to look at it. I agree that that's what the CDC is thinking. But the thing is, in America, this is a nation under the rule of law, and no one is above the law, not even the president. And all of these people at the CDC, they work for the president. They are subordinate to the president. So if the president has to follow the law, so do the people at CDC. And and the law in question, again, the APA, there's there's a broad body of... Supreme Court precedent and other fed- and federal appeals courts that lay out the criteria of what the APA yeah. requires. It requires, in a word, what's called reasoned decision making. And then it goes through all these hallmarks of what it means to be arbitrary and capricious and that not being reasoned decision making. And let me just give you one quick example, Joseph, of what I'm talking about, yeah. because we raised this in our briefs with FRC Action in our own case, which is in the Northern District of Texas. Uh, And what we explained there is that it is undisputed that the air on airplanes is safer. It is more sanitized many times over than what you have in a restaurant. And yet CDC guidelines say it's okay to be unmasked in a restaurant, but you need to be masked in an airplane when you're sitting the same distance away from people that you would in a restaurant and where the airplane air is cleaner. And what I mean by that is, like, in a restaurant, the air may recirculate through a filter about every 15 minutes. In an airplane, it's every 30 seconds. And there's all of these studies that have been done, including by the government. Like, for example, the government, the Defense Department, did a study uh, roughly a year ago where they said that it would take 54 hours on an airplane to get infected uh, if if you're sitting nearby someone who has COVID. 54 hours. Now, the longest flight on the planet is only one third that. It's 18 hours. It's a flight to Singapore. And of course, people flying domestically, it's only a fraction of 18 hours. And yet CDC guidelines say, well, you need to wear a mask on that airplane, but you don't need to wear it on the restaurant, despite the fact that the air is dirtier for COVID spread. That is an example of arbitrary and capricious. And this is just a judge making government agencies follow the law.
1: Now, Ken, uh, the arguments that you've made there are compelling to a lot of people who are watching and listening today, I know. But tell us, why did it take this long? Because we know that the White House had just extended the travel uh, mask requirements. They were set to expire in a couple weeks anyway. We've been having these debates for literally two years, more than two years. Why did it take this long, if that's what the law required, for a court to step in and say, no, federal government, you can't do that?
0: Well, because the evidence has to build up over time. I mean, it's almost like, and you want to have a presumption of good faith, when we're dealing with a public health emergency and government is trying to rush into the breach and figure out what needs to be done to keep people safe, it's like people start off with the benefit of the doubt, you know, and and you assume that if the government is telling you to follow the science, that they're going to follow the science. And so with the scientific method, we try all sorts of approaches, if there's a medical hypothesis that it might be helpful, and then we track the data. And the data that we've built over time, see, we started off thinking masks are very effective. Then as the data built up, we found out that masks are only slightly effective, like a common cloth mask that many of our listeners would have been been wearing, A cloth mask, according to scientific studies, is only 10% effective. A surgical mask, only 12% effective. Even the vaunted N95 mask, depending on the type you're wearing, is anywhere from 46% to 65% effective, but it takes months to get that kind of data, and it also takes months to get the data to where we realize that there are actually health consequences, that there is a potential downside, especially for children, when Ken? it comes to prolonged mask wearing. That takes the time. That takes a while to build up the evidence.
1: Ken, in about 20 seconds, how does this decision affect the lawsuit that you are in charge of on behalf of FRC Action challenging these mandates? Well, that's
0: exactly what our judge is figuring out right now. He's he's requested supplemental briefings. He's like, this other judge has struck this down nationwide. But, of course, that case could be appealed. She could be reversed on appeal. And so he's asking us to file briefs by Friday making the arguments, us and the Justice Department, as to whether under the law he is entitled, he is empowered to move forward at this point and issue his own
1: ruling in our own lawsuit. So that's what we're right in the middle of working on this week. And we look forward to hearing more about it. Glenn Kukowski, thank you so much for your time today. Thank you, sir. God bless. Coming up, we're going to continue this conversation you've heard from the lawyer. Next, we're going to talk to the doctor about the end of the mandate. Stay with us here on Washington Watch.
4: To six seven
1: seven four two welcome back to Washington Watch. My name is Joseph back home sitting in for Tony today. So glad to be with you and that you are with us. As we've already discussed on the program today. The major American airlines have dropped their mask requirements following a federal court ruling that overturned the Biden administration's mandate on masks for travel. Now, we just heard from a lawyer. We've discussed this from a legal standpoint. What about the science and the public health? Joining me now is an expert in the field to discuss just that. Dr. Andrew Boston is an academic clinical trialist, epidemiologist, and research physician at the Brown University Center for Primary Care and Prevention at Kent Memorial Hospital in Rhode Island. Dr. Boston. welcome back to Washington Watch. Uh, Thanks for
5: having me back,
0: Joseph.
1: We're we're glad to have you. Now, we just got done talking to Ken Klukowski, who kind of analyzed this from a legal perspective for us. He said essentially that the judge determined that the mask mandate from the federal government was arbitrary and capricious. From a legal perspective, what's your reaction to that?
5: Oh, I, I, I am I am uh, profoundly grateful to this very courageous judge for her decision, um, and she also did at least touch upon some of the science because apparently there's an obscure statute that referred to sanitation, uh, and she simply pointed out that you know basically in in, in layman's terms uh, that masks are you know don't provide any form of sanitation. In fact, I, I, I would add, Joseph, uh, you know, masks that have been studied uh, after clinical use, even a, even short term in the, in the operating room among surgeons, uh, you know, can really can really become heavily contaminated uh, with with bacteria. So she made a very logical scientific point, uh, even though it's a little bit obscure. But the, but the literature, um, the, the the randomized controlled trials where we where we really pr- provide the gold standard evidence for whether an intervention and a mask, you know, masking is an intervention, works or not in in its clinical application, um, are uniformly negative uh, for both influenza uh, and we we have at least uh, two large trials that have been reported for COVID. In other words, you know, they they, they test the hypothesis that masking in the community would reduce uh, community viral transmission again. There's there's been about a dozen studies for influenza in the community since 2008, and there's been two studies, including one enormous study uh, for for COVID. uh, uh, And all 14 studies consecutively from 2008 through uh, 2021 have all been negative, and they've involved now in aggregate about 360,000 persons. So this is a lot of data and it's strikingly consistent, and, and, and typically, Joseph, when, when the weight of evidence for, for clinical trials was, say, favorable, let's say not even all 14 had shown a benefit, say 12 out of 14 had shown a benefit, at that point, um, you would gather together the evidence, and, you know, there'd be some sort of consensus panel, and they would make a recommendation, Joseph, perhaps, that masking could be applied in a situation like a, like a, like a pandemic, COVID pandemic, an influenza pandemic, but it would be a recommendation. Here, they've turned the whole paradigm on its head. You have all this uni- you have this it can, you know uniformly negative randomized control trial evidence, and yet you know the public health authorities have managed to push through uh, mandates. or certainly recommended them, and then governmental authorities have pushed through mandates. It it turns the whole. Um, evidence-based paradigm on its
1: head, actually, John. Dr. Boston, there's a lot of, there are different reactions to this judge's decision, and there are certainly people who are happy to be free of of masks and the mask mandate. There are others who are concerned who now express uh, fear over traveling, being in close quarters on an airplane with people who are unmasked. What would you say to those people?
5: Well, I think the airlines have made a very compelling argument, and which is why they they were they were uh, ur- urging that the mandate be lifted sooner, particularly when all when all these other mandates at the community level had, had already been lifted. And their argument is that certainly in the, in the space that they can directly control the airplane itself, there are there are now uh, they've integrated some very highly efficient uh, filtration systems that make the air constantly recirculated. And I think they've they've added sort of virucidal technology to kill a virus, um, and and that regardless of mask use, which again in the community didn't really work anyway, um, they're, they're actually certainly in the cabins, people are in a very safe environment, you know. So I I, I think that's pre- that's really all the argument that you you would need to make you know, to assure people. But again, I think there's been the the the, the, the idea that masks are somehow effective has been so heavily propagandized, and I have to call it propaganda at, at, at this point, Joseph, because, again, the, the, the hard evidence is so uniformly negative uh, that it's frightens people. It's frightened people unnecessarily. Um, and, again, the, the environment in a, in a plane cabin uh, is, is, is probably one of the safer
1: environments. It will be interesting to see the fallout of this, of course, and and, and you alluded to this earlier. Mask mandates have generally gone away previously in the rest of the country. Most people aren't wearing them in restaurants. Most people aren't wearing them in schools. Why is it, do you think, that airplanes and public transportation was one of the last areas for mask mandates to go away?
5: I think some of it is psychological uh well, well I think part of it is is a practical issue a political issue is is that is that the transportation systems the mass tra- those kind of interstate mass uh, transportation systems are under federal control so that 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 becomes a political issue um, as opposed to individual states having the right to to limit you know uh mask mandates in 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 their in their in their individual communities um, but but uh uh I, I, I think that that people also, I mean, psychologically, you're, you're, it looks like a looks almost like a submarine, you know, when you're in an airplane. And I think the closeness, uh, ignoring the, the the efficient filtration systems that are in there, uh, puts a psychological burden on people that are fearful about about transmission. Uh, so I think that 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 may that may be you know some sort of a, a mitigating factor in in, 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 in considering why they they've. they've uh, They've been kept on uh, longer than than the other the other forms
1: of states. Now, Dr. Brostom, in about 20 seconds, the White House is encouraging people to continue wearing masks. What do you say to that?
7: Uh, well,
5: it's it's consistent with their you know with their zealotry, but it's not consistent with the data and really with the, the desires, as you can see by the popular reaction of the vast swaths of the population.
1: Dr. Andrew Brostrom, thank you so much for your time today. Take care, Joseph. Bye-bye. The message there I hope you heard is you don't need to be afraid, and that's what we're preaching here all the time is live fearlessly, uh, whether there's a real risk or not, that there's a lot of things we don't control, and that's one of them. But stay tuned. Another issue to be concerned about, puberty blockers for kids. Welcome back to Washington Watch. My name is Joseph Backholm, sitting in Fort Tony. I want to remind you that the website is TonyPerkins.com, where you can find this in every episode of Washington Watch on demand and at your convenience. Now, earlier this month, to mark International Transgender Day of Visibility, President Biden stated that, quote, affirming a transgender child's identity is one of the best things a parent, teacher, or doctor can do. To help keep children from harm, end quote. Yet, as anyone who has followed the science on this topic knows, transgender procedures for children are a far cry from safe, especially when these children are in a vulnerable state. Our next guest tweeted words to this effect and drew fire from PolitiFact, which is a partisan left-wing commentary site that purports to be a neutral fact-checking service. Joining me now to discuss this is U.S. Representative Mary Miller. She serves on the Committee on Education and Labor and the Committee on Agriculture and represents Illinois' 15th District. Representative Miller, welcome back to Washington Watch. Thank you for having me. Well, we're glad to have you. You've been outspoken on this issue uh, for a while now, the effects of chemicals and surgeries on children in an effort to make them look like the opposite sex. But now PolitiFact has labeled some of your statements false. Give us the background. Tell us what happened.
7: Sure. Well, of course, you just said that Biden administration put out this guidance called gender affirming care, which specifically states it's for transgender and non binary children and adolescents, early gender affirming care is crucial to overall health and well being. And um, the House Education and Labor held a hearing with Biden's Health and Human Services Secretary. And I asked the secretary if performing these procedures on 12 year old children is child abuse. And first of all, he refused to answer the question. Then, I was most troubled that Biden's Health and Human Services Secretary refused to confirm that parental consent would be necessary for these procedures. Um, They're doing nothing but engaging in extreme woke politics with children being their victims. I can't even think of, of enough bad adjectives to describe this. It's evil, it's insane, and they are on the wrong side of public opinion, um, also, a lot of people refer to um, uh, to uh, Politifact as PolitiFraud, fraud," and of course, they're attacking me for defending young children.
1: The politics of this issue are remarkable, and you referred to one of the understated but very important parts of this conversation, and that is a parental consent. And we've talked about parental consent around the issue of abortion a lot. But in this case, increasingly, you're finding a conflict there where children are being given and, and asking for these hormones that can can stop puberty and eventually uh, can actually just suppress your hormone, your natural uh, development as a child, but the parents may not even be involved in these decisions. And now the conflict you've had with the White House and and now with PolitiFact has to do with the question of whether these puberty blockers are reversible. Define what that means to you. When they say it's reversible and you say it's not reversible, what are you referring to?
7: (laughs) Yes, they did say that they're reversible and that my claims on the dangers of these medications are false. But The truth is, the truth is that this is another lie that they are propagating, and they are going after the vulnerable, which is our children, who are not mature enough to make these decisions. Um, A lot of children grow out of this, and this has actually become a popular issue. It's being pushed by the schools, by our government, by our culture, and it's super sad. But, okay, well, for one thing, it's it's dangerous because it affects their bone growth and their future ability to have children um, their gross birth and uh, bone growth density and Mayo Clinic states in their guidance on puberty blockers that they can have long-term long-term effects so you know they can bring it on I'm not backing down <laughs> They're
1: well, we appreciate you for that, and, and I think what it's important for people to understand is if you take an 11-year-old and you put him or her on puberty blockers for two years and then take them off of puberty blockers when they're 13, puberty will start again, it will finally happen, but you don't get those two years of development back. And so that really does have a long-term impact on how that child will develop, what ultimately their life is going to be like. It doesn't necessarily sterilize you like cross-sex hormones do, but it does have a long-term impact on your body's natural development because you've essentially stopped it for two years. Now, Representative Miller, what happens if we don't get in front of this issue, get control of it, and just allow this to continue where children are being encouraged in this direction, disguising their sex, taking hormones for life? What's the end game if we don't stop it?
7: I don't know. I think a lot of this has to do with population control. I mean, you think about what they're promoting, and You know, they're anti-life, and God is all about life. He's about physical life and eternal life, and they are, um, you know, they're opposed to both of those things, and I'm going to fight back. I don't—if they want to bring—if they want to fight, they can bring it on, because like I said, I'm not backing down, and they are definitely on the wrong side of the American people, on the public, and and the the public wants parents involved.
1: There is a lot of data that suggests you are correct about that. As hard as the White House and many others push on this issue, America is not just buying the idea that mutilating your body and taking cross-sex hormones is good for you. Representative Miller, thank you so much for your courage in confronting this issue as well as for your time today. Thank you so much.
7: Well, our children are worth fighting for.
1: Indeed they are. God bless you. Now, coming up, another issue. The Biden administration plans to revoke Title 42 next month, making it easier to enter the country. But we already have record levels of, of transgressions at the southern border. What does it mean? We'll talk about it when we...
9: Do you want to be able to stay up to date on conservative news? Are you looking for Christian resources to help you stay politically engaged? Then download Family Research Council's Stand Firm app. by contacting your elected officials on the issues that most concern you. Visit the app store on your smartphone or mobile device and search Stand Firm to download Family Research Council's official Stand Firm app.
8: What is religious liberty and why should you care about it? Simply put, religious liberty is the freedom to choose your religious beliefs and to live according to those beliefs.
10: Visit frc.org/slash internships to apply.
1: Welcome back to Washington Washington, just back for Tony today. Title 42 was a Trump-era administration rule that required those seeking asylum in the United States to wait on the other side of the border. While that asylum application was processed and it was done uh, under the justification that we didn't know who had COVID and who didn't and trying to protect the country from the virus, we would ask people to stay on the other side of the border while it was processed well. The Biden administration has recently announced that they are going to revoke this rule and they are going to allow people who apply for asylum to wait inside the borders of the United States. This has historically uh, been a challenge because you don't always know where people are for the years often it takes for asylum applications to be processed. And oftentimes uh, the government loses, loses tracks, loses track, excuse me, of the applicants. Well, The decision to revoke this rule has raised questions from even some Democrats in Congress who have begun to ask some pointed questions of the Biden administration about whether this is the right time to revoke the rule. Now, in addition, the decision to revoke Title 42 comes amidst reports from Border Patrol officials the agents have apprehended nearly 210,000 migrants who illegally crossed the southern border with Mexico in March. And that was the the 210,000 record migrants happened prior to the Biden administration's decision to revoke Title 42. So does this mean That when Title 42 is revoked, making it easier to come into the country, the number of migrants approaching the border and crossing the border and applying for asylum is going to increase even more. And further, does this mean that the apprehensions, that the record apprehensions at the border, that our border patrol is actually working? Is our border security uh, Correct. Are we, is it effective? And does the record number of apprehensions indicate that our border security has been effective? And joining me now, and we are hoping, uh, did, did we have a Okay, and we are hoping to have uh, Jenny Tehr from Daily Caller uh, here shortly to join us. But this is the dilemma that the Biden administration is facing, and frankly, the country is facing, uh, because the Biden administration has faced a ton of criticism, not only because they, well, initially, They did not complete the border wall, which as we know, the Trump administration has prioritized. And hundreds of miles of border wall had been laid across the southern border during the last year in particular of the Trump administration. And now much of the steel lays on the desert in Texas and southern Arizona, and it is unassembled. And there are giant holes in that wall. I have been there to see the giant holes in the wall and the steel steel laying literally feet in some cases, away from the hole in the wall. And the Biden administration ordered that the steel that is laying next to the wall not be placed up as part of the wall. And so, of course, that incentivized a lot of people to begin crossing the border. Um, But now, In addition to that, we have this Title 42 issue, because the one thing that the Biden administration was carrying over from the Trump administration was the fact that for those seeking asylum, they were going to require them to wait on the other side of the border. So the combination of these things perhaps is leading to this record increase of migrants reaching the border. And is the Biden, the Biden administration has taken a tremendous amount of political heat for this already, certainly from Republicans. But what is becoming unique about this is that they are now beginning to get questions from, Dem- from the, the White House's uh, allies in the Democratic Party as well. And I think we now have joining us by phone is Jenny Terre from the Daily Caller. Jenny, do we have you? Yes, I'm here. Thank you. Great. Thank you for joining us. Now, I first, you've been tracking this issue at the border closely. Uh, What's your reaction uh, initially to this latest figure from March, 210,000 migrants apprehended at the southern border?
2: Yeah, it's an astounding figure. It's actually the highest since uh, March 2000. So that's going back over two decades. Um, This is a problem that we're seeing, a rise in migrant encounters and apprehensions, um, and it seems like it's only going to get worse with Title 42 being lifted in May. Uh, May 23rd is when the CDC decided it would be lifted. Um, so migrants, uh, migrants are getting that message as well as Border Patrol. Border Patrol is trying to prepare for this. And uh, the Biden administration is recognizing that there will be a surge. Um, but it's unclear what the plan is. And I think that's something that uh, border officials I talked to Um, that are going to have to handle this are really concerned about.
1: Jenny, how is the White House reacting to these record numbers? Do they have an explanation for this?
2: You know, this is uh, the time of year that um, the migrant encounters surge, and that's um, why, you know, every March we see it when things kind of get cooled down temperature-wise. It's not too cold. It's not too hot. And it's just before those brutal summer months at the border. Um, so they've kind of used this line um, whenever things have peaked, that uh, this is the season for immigration. Um, it's interesting. They, they say they're, they're ready for a surge, and it, they recognize that more people are coming. So, um, you know, they, they say they're prepared. But again, you know, President Biden said he would eventually visit the border. That's what the White House said. Um, So you would think that now is the time. So um, maybe someone should ask the White House about that, uh, given we're in the state of a huge surge last month in March and now something probably even more uh, that they're expecting. Jenny, you
1: mentioned the 210,000 Apprehensions at the border, certainly not everyone was apprehended because that's just the way these things work. Is there any argument to be made that the record number of apprehensions is evidence that border security is actually working? They're apprehending that many people because the border is secure.
2: I would argue that uh, Title 42 is working. Um, you know, of the 221,000 people encountered, Um, There were 109,000, just about, uh, that were uh, sent back under Title 42 uh, last month. Um, So it will be interesting to see what it's going to be like when everyone is processed under what's known as Title 8 for inadmissibility, um, because they will have to await court proceedings. So uh, it's going to be the case where Border Patrol ICE doesn't have enough space if they're going to see a surge like they're expecting, and people will have to be released. And that's what I'm told.
1: There's a lot of frustration about this. We've mentioned that the Republicans have been hitting President Biden on this hard uh, since the day of his inauguration. With the revocation of Title 42, he's starting to take some from heat from his own party now. Is there a solution to this problem? Or do we just eternally have to talk about this southern border crisis?
2: Right. I think, um, you know, a lot of both sides talk about solutions to the issue. I've yet to really understand what the solution is to everyone that has been admitted into the country, because that is something Republicans complain about, um, that everyone is released and that everybody is going to be released. That's something they use as a talking point. Um, But I've asked them. I've asked Republican leadership about this. Uh, When it comes to enforcement and removal, which is mostly what ICE handles, um, what is their plan? And there doesn't seem to be one right now. So that's something that Republicans should be pressed more on, um, especially if they win back the majority. Uh, It doesn't appear like they have a plan.
1: Jenny Terrett, Daily Caller, thank you so much for your time and your update on this. Uh, we look forward to having this conversation again, because I know the issue is not going away. Thank you so much for being with us. Thank you. And it is an unusual issue, because other than uh, the border right now, sadly, between Ukraine and uh You know, Romania and the neighboring countries in Ukraine, I can't, in Poland, perhaps, can't think of any other migration issue anywhere in the globe that's similar to this. It is a unique problem. It's a unique challenge that we have to rise to the occasion uh, to deal with. Now, our final topic for the show today you are probably familiar with the Defund Police movement. And some of the members of that movement are members of Congress what you might not know is that some of the same people advocating to defund the police also have taxpayer-funded private security details. Now, there are many parts of the country where a private security detail would be helpful, of course. But if it seems hypocritical to you to, on one hand, call for the defunding of the police and, on the other hand, have a taxpayer-funded, privately-funded security detail, You aren't the only one who sees that as hypocritical. Our next guest found this hypocrisy startling enough that he introduced a resolution that would prevent any legislator who advocates for defunding the police from accessing taxpayer-funded security. And we are... Waiting now to have Congressman Greg Murphy join us. He has introduced this resolution. This is a unique; it's an interesting issue. And oftentimes in in politics, you introduce resolutions rather than legislation because you want to make a particular point. There's an argument. There's an issue worth bringing attention to the public uh, for. raising the awareness for the public of the issue is probably a better way of of saying that. And he has introduced a resolution as a way of bringing to the public's attention the fact that, and one thing I don't even know that I was aware of, is the fact that taxpayers pay for private security for members of Congress. How long has this been going on? But of course... It is clear that there is a bit of hypocrisy when a member of Congress would say, Hey, taxpayers, I need you to fund and pay for a private security detail for me so that when I go someplace, uh, there are people assigned specifically to me to keep me and only me safe from whatever threats the world offers. And of course, most people don't have that luxury. But what we have had uh, historically is a police department, and now those are seeking to be defunded by some members of Congress. And joining me now to discuss it all is Congressman Greg Murphy, who serves on the House Ways and Means Committee and represents North Carolina. Carolina's 3rd District. Congressman Murphy, welcome to Washington Watch.
11: Hey, Joseph. Good afternoon. I hope you're doing well.
1: I am well, and I am glad to have you today. This is clever and I think important. Uh, Tell me the background. What prompted you to introduce a resolution saying that if you're trying to defund the police, you don't get taxpayer-funded private security details?
11: You know, Joseph, it's just continue with the hypocrisy of the Democratic left. When I heard specifically that Cori Bush had used hundreds of thousands of taxpayer dollars while she is screaming out to defund the police. And she's used hundreds of thousands of taxpayer dollars for her own personal security. I just felt it had to be messaged. It had to be brought out. Uh, you know, I don't believe in Nancy Pelosi's world this is going to go anywhere. Um, but I do think it's important that people know, especially in her district, that, that she has said to not, uh, to, to not have policemen for her people – her district, her constituents, but no, on the other hand, it's okay for her to have uh, safety and security um, by using our taxpayer dollars. It is the ultimate in hypocrisy.
1: Congressman, I mentioned in the intro to this conversation that I was not aware prior to this that taxpayers were funding private security details for members of Congress. How common is this?
11: Well, I'm not sure how common it is, Joseph, um, you know we're allowed to use some of our uh, members' resident, our members' uh, allowance for security, especially if they're death threats and some of these other things. Um, I've had them myself. But nothing on the scale that we have seen before from some of these progressive left people, where they're using hundreds of thousands of dollars, and they're at the same time saying, look, um, I don't think we need security for my constituents. I don't want any police officers for my constituents. We're not funding. Um, uh, safety and security for you, my constituents, but we're going to fund it for me. So it's follow the rules, but not what do what I say, but not what I do. And uh, that nonsense has to stop
1: rules for me and rules for thee. This isn't the first time we've seen something like this out of Washington, D.C., of course. I don't know. Yeah. I'm unfamiliar with how often you speak to all of your colleagues in Congress. You mentioned Congresswoman Cory Bush specifically. Have you had a response? Have you gotten a response? Had a chance to talk to her about this? How, how does a member of Congress reconcile a, an effort to publicly defund the police while at the same time having a highly funded private security detail?
11: Yeah, I don't. I don't think I can have that discussion with her. I don't see that. uh, I don't think she's able to have that type of discussion. And you know, we uh, got up a few weeks ago um, and did a special hour to honor our police officers. And here she is. She's sitting up in the dais in in the place of speaker, and we're we're speaking on the House floor about our police officers. And she's sitting up in the dais playing on her telephone. She wouldn't give us the respect that other members of Congress should give. She's up playing on her telephone when we're talking about police officers who've uh, literally risked their lives for the security of the people of this nation. What an utterly uh, despicable act that was. And uh, I'm sorry, this is what this nation doesn't need. It doesn't need hypocritical hypocritical leaders. um, And she's the one, uh, she's being the epitome of it in this particular instance.
1: And Congressman Murphy, I think most of America would agree with you on in, in this case. And I would also venture to say that the White House has moved away from this defund police movement. And I dare say that uh, the right has won on this issue because I think the left has realized this is not a political winner, that people want to have uh, police protection. They want to have someone to call when something bad happens, and they want to for the very same reasons that Congresswoman Cory Bush wants to have security as well. And I think America yeah. understands this for what it is, and we appreciate yeah. you bringing it to our attention in your time today. Thank you so much.
11: Great. Take care. God bless.
1: God bless you, Congressman. And that is our show for today. And friends, we thank you for being with us as well here on Washington Watch. Until next time, fear God. Washington
0: Watch with Tony Perkins is brought to you by Family Research Council and is entirely listener supported. Portions of the show discussing candidates are brought to you by Family Research Council Action. For more information on anything you've heard today or to find out how you can partner with us in our ongoing efforts to promote faith, family and freedom, visit TonyPerkins.com.